This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. What does it mean to have an open and free internet? How should we think about censorship, opportunity, risk? What are tech leaders really saying about the future of work and the impact of AI and automation? My friend, Joel Beasley, is the host of the Modern CTO Podcast. Joel has interviewed hundreds of CTOs, tech evangelists, and other thought leaders, and he brings his perspective from those conversations to our conversation. So join us as we tackle this and more on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Uh, three, two, one, Joel Beasley, welcome back uh, to the QTS Experience. I'm really stoked about this conversation. How are you? Dude, I am fantastic. Life is good. And uh, when I got to hear that I was talking with you again, I was just super pumped up. When we talked, you had, you're the host of The Modern CTO, an outstanding, uh, one of the leading technology podcasts out there. And I had been referred to you by a number of people in my industry, the data center industry, and then some other folks that I knew who aren't in telecom or data center, but they knew your podcast. They really enjoyed the kind of people that you got on there and the conversations. And you were, I don't remember if you were a year in, but certainly it was a lumpy year with the pandemic and you guys were working through that. From then till now, I don't want to miss the opportunity to hear how the show's evolved and um, w- whether it's the technical components of it or the guests that you're getting on or the things that you're talking about. Can you help catch us up? Yeah. Um, Rocky, uh, I want to make sure I like pinpoint the right time. So like right when the pandemic happened, I think that was like March when things closed down. I yeah. think we talked around there. We, sure. uh, did we talk March? I think we talked in October. Okay. so It was in the October. fall. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So things with the business um, side of things, because that's we have about <clears throat> like 11 employees here at the podcast. Um, but at the time, we were transitioning business models because of the pandemic. So before we were licensing content for leadership training, uh, licensing the interviews, and then we switched to people paying to come on the podcast and we make them like deliverables. So we had that transition. And of course, you know, like all the up and down of entrepreneurship, Mm. but the show's changed um, in a couple of ways. I hired this awesome person named Yvonne and she books, you know, just special guest episodes, like people that build underwater robots or an individual who's working on like nuclear powered submarines or cloning salmon, just random things. So that's about 20% of what the show is now. And then the other 80% is people looking to grow in their career. You know, how does the CTO of Verizon or NASA, how do they think about, you know, time management or, you know, leveling up in their career? And then, um, We'll do some cool technical interviews too. Like we had Sir Tim Berners-Lee on, uh, creator of the World Wide Web. So he came on and talked about like how the web is changing and what the future looks like. So we have the, like, those are the typical categories. We call it educate, entertain, and elevate. Mm. So that's how we look at each episode. Where have you found in the last six months as you've worked through that, whether it's a special episode or a current episode, where when you were done, you just said, what just happened? Like I went in with a big idea of something, the tech, the person, a philosophy, maybe uh, sometimes, I don't want to use the word confrontational, but there are times I have guests on that I don't, I know a little bit about them 
and I don't necessarily agree with their perspective, but I want to hear it. And it's not a contentious conversation, but it's, you know, we don't always agree. Um, what of those conversations have you come back saying, huh, that was a surprise, hopefully in a pleasant way? Um, it happens a lot. We definitely have, and I'm glad Adam's on the call too. Adam, who was the person we just talked to that was like really interesting? And we were surprised after. We're like, that's a great episode. Uh, I don't remember. I don't know if we were surprised by it, but just yesterday you talked to uh, the general manager of underwater robots at Saab. That one was that one was cool. But like about like a week or so ago, we talked to somebody, and it was just it, you said in the team meeting that it was like one of your favorite episodes ever. Ooh. I have I have a suggestion for you yeah. of one of mine that's a pretty recent one that just Please. left John Lennox. John Lennox. I think John that Lennox was the was, one. We had him on recently. Yeah, oh, that uh, was the one. I think I was talking about Martin Ford. Oh. Yes. I don't know if you can see this, but in my notes, Martin Ford, futurist. Yeah. Robotics and um, UBI. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Both Martin, of those guys. Dude, I got so many, like people reach out and stuff after certain podcasts and right. you know they can listen to the library at any point in time. So right. um, I get feedback across the board, but I have never gotten as much outreach and personal LinkedIn messages and personal direct emails as I've gotten with John Lennox episode. He wins the most outreach after an episode award. Yeah. He, um, I've listened to John many times. Um, never even occurred to me, uh, to invite him on the show because one of the things that I like, I talk to people about all the time. It doesn't always, not every episode we record makes it to the show for one reason or the other, but the, ethics of AI. And that's one of the things that I love, John, um, you know, as a, as a mathematician, a classically trained mathematician, a philosopher. Um, he happens to be a, a Christian apologetic person, which, while well, that's my personal faith, it is his, the way that he walks through with reason, and he's very engaging, I thought, in that he's not a, he's no more against AI than he is against a hammer. Like, it's, it's not for or against, and he makes that point very elegantly over and over and over, he just helped to challenge me to think about and really resonate with a lot of other thinkers that I've been talking to, how when we apply a tool in a very specific focused way, this is where it probably could change the world, will change the world, mostly in beneficial ways. When, when something has the power of the gods but no moral ethic, and you have no agreed standard of um, you know, a world acceptance. For example, if you're a small country and you don't like how trade deals are going, you can go to the uh, WTO, if or health issues, you can go to the WHO. If it's a diplomacy thing, you can go to the UN. There, there are places and agreed upon things and there, there are barriers and boundaries, but some of this tech doesn't have that. And I like, John didn't tease all of that out, but he really got me to think about a number of things of critical thinking, whether we agree or disagree with him. It was a brilliant conversation. It really captured my imagination. I thought he was a genius. He is a genius. One of the things you asked me earlier about different episodes, um, I've been struggling with figuring out how to have the conversation <clears throat> around um, big tech censorship for a couple reasons. The first one is, most of our sponsors are big tech, right? Yeah. So like you want to be careful about like how much you you beat up on a topic. But I did a couple um, interviews and it, we didn't air the episode, 
mostly because, you know, they had very strong opinions and they kept coming back like every argument or discussion point on big tech censorship led back to something that was political. And I'm trying to like not make the right. show divisive. You know, right. I'm just more like, hey, censorship is happening. It's definitely the Wild West out there because, you know, we make laws and arrears to like massive issues. So I just am curious, you know, what the current thoughts are about censorship. It's a hard thing, you know, right. even like Facebook, they're like, oh, we want to be better. But like, what do we do? Do we set up a panel? Is it a third party company? So talking about censorship is something that's been really hard and we haven't figured it out yet on the show. I have zero interest in making anybody look bad or, um, you know, we live in the world. I'm, I, I, you know, my name's not on my podcast. I work for an organization and, um, we, not just our sponsors, but our friends, our customers, our whatever are, you know, the entire world of data, right? The data is the commodity of the whole world these days. And that, that takes a million forms from very, very, the largest companies on earth to um, minute niche players. And so a couple things for us, one, or at least for me, I'm, I have zero interest in taking the conversation to what teams winning, pick a color, pick a nation state, pick a whatever, um, number one. Number two, I have yet to come across, I'm sure it happens human beings being human beings, but everybody that is in my layer one, layer two, I don't know about layer three circles, I think are people of integrity and they're hardworking and mo almost all of this, even with some of the documentaries that have come out in the last couple of years, a lot of those folks are like, look, most of this is unintentional. The algorithm is doing what they're doing. Kind of like when we first made airplanes, the um, focus on the regulation about you know parts and maintenance and routes and air traffic control was loose and there were things that didn't work well and sometimes the technology failed or people manipulated things. Even early days of media, um, there have been things, what gets into the newspaper, what got onto the front page, what was in the, the, the television news. And so we sort through it over time, generally speaking. Um, to me, to kind of take that discussion and go further, it is... Um, there is the big idea, I think, that is people we need to think about, and that is here in the West anyway, my only personal experience, we all have an agreement with any of the technologies that we use that are free. They And our governments, our governments, you know, they are listening to phone calls. They are, um, hopefully they'll listen to this show and drive my viewership up. But yeah. <laughs> um, uh, they're listening to, they probably already done it, said we can, we don't need to waste our time anymore. Let's save resources and move on to something else. They read our text. They, they do all those other things that we know it. That's not particularly concerning to me. Once upon a time in my life, I was really worried about it. Now there's so many things that are going on that, um, that that's not as interesting. What is interesting to me, though, is that there are parts of the world where that data, those systems, not so much in the West, the EU or the United States or Canada, but in other places where they're centralizing that data and then they're taking it and they're saying, okay, now I'm going to give you a credit score. Now I'm going to give you a social acceptance score based upon your behavior or this data. 
you and I could travel to where we want to travel. We can say pretty much anything that's not treasonous. It may cost us a job or whatever, but we have we have a lot of freedom even within this oversight and these things that they're monetizing and they're using or whatever. But there's no threat to us, really. Not If there is, it's a long-term existential that people are pontificating about. And I, I don't know. They've I, I once looked at this history of the last 200 years, and we could probably go back to the original days of forming bricks to build pyramids, and they were saying the same thing. But in terms of practical, everyday impact, for us, we're not really in, experiencing an influence of that. Well, we are, but there are parts of the world where that data is, I don't want to say weaponized, but it's, it's almost like that, but that it's being used to impact what people can do um, where they can go, what they can buy, how they can consume things. And then scarier version than that, in some places, if Dave McCall is labeled as less um, credible, less desired, you're down in the yellow score. By whatever that centralized government or data says, the people connected to me are then impacted. Their score is reduced. If you sell to me on the books, if you do business in any way with me, if you're affiliated with me in my social media or whatever. I know you recently had a uh, retired FBI or ex-FBI person on your show, probably many of them in that world. Oh, Mark. Yeah. Or no, so Mark, I, he got raided by the FBI. <clears throat> well, I didn't get to listen to that podcast. Oh. I just saw that he was on there. But I have a, we have a, I've got friends that have retired from the FBI. I know a number of them. And we talk, we've talked on the show, although we haven't released the podcast yet. Um, it's going through post-production. Uh, with uh, Charlie Mariota, who's talking about, look, there's things that are going on in the world where, uh, you know, we don't chase down bank robbers very often anymore, you know, and, and even the domestic things like um, ID uh, theft and things like that, they're important. But as we look on the horizon, we're looking how data is being manipulated, not just physical threats, but, but nation states are using these things or other people. And so it's a really compelling, interesting conversation. And this power lives in, hasn't had a, a lot of government oversight. And I, as a libertarian for me, you know, I like enough, I want an inspector to inspect my home. I don't, nobody wants no regulation. That's not going to work because then we have unsafe places to live. But what's that right balance of oversight and entrepreneurship? And so I, I just think that's fair to ask the marketplace. But I'm watching these things happen around the world, or at least I'm starting to hear them and learn of them. What is it that happens with this stuff when it goes beyond just the, how do I customize your experience when you go to the store or you go to a show or whatever, so that I'm feeding you things I think that are of interest to you? Because at the end of the day, that's what they want. They want to make money and move things and whatever. And it well, becomes an more I want to limit you. What's your idea? Okay, so... Uh, let's say like we are starting from scratch, right? With the whole internet and everything. If right now, let's just use Facebook um, okay. as because everyone knows it. Uh, right now, Facebook, they are both the data store and the filter. Mm -hmm. So they store the raw information and then they filter what's accessible based off of their community guidelines. And so they have community guidelines. Mm -hmm. You go over to Spotify. They are the data store and the filter, and they have community guidelines. Um, the internet was built to be open and free. At the same time, we all agree that there are things that need to be filtered. However, yeah. what should be filtered to what degree varies greatly 
based off of local culture. Mm. Um, and, and so one of the things I thought of is if you could make all of the popular sites raw data stores where you can post anything and then a new layer of technology emerged that were filters and you could sort of subscribe to these filters and they would have similar uh, uh, values across all of your data interactions that could be really interesting because then i could make one you know i could have a whole profile for like uh like a like a church filter. So, you know, when I'm in that filter, it's all things that would be acceptable to them in, in that community. I can have uh, a technology leader filter and they're filtering out the, the worst management ideas and, you know, pumping up right. the best management ideas and there's transparency there. Um, I think that that could be an interesting world to live in. Uh, I think everything's just really new. And so we're watching the pains of like, they are trying to decide what's great for everyone. Right. Where you the way you win is decentralize it and empower individuals and communities to decide what's right for them. And I think that's a, a, p a potential solution. I call it like a new level, like a filter economy, a new level of products that are just filters. I like that idea. Um, one, because I don't want to interfere with um, the free market and entrepreneurship, the most innovative technology, or certainly some of the most, comes from the United States because of a combination of, um, you know, protections from our government and uh, opportunity to, without much interference, to thrive and survive. And um, I'm, you know, it, we're not saying this. I'm not interested in, it doesn't seem to me like, like, I'm not interested in the conversation of let's demonize some group or whatever. So I want them to have that ability to do it. At the same time, I do like that idea of can I apply a filter, which then allows me to modify my experience to um, what do I want to stream in? What do I want to stream out? That already sort of happens a little bit, though. Like, you know, if you go, I love um, Meta or Facebook. Mm -hmm. I use it, though. I don't post a lot. I use it to keep up with my disc golf groups. What, what tournaments are happening around me? What's going on in the world of dirt bike racing? What's going on with this group of friends of mine or family or whatever? Things like that. The ability to have a smart filter, almost an AI-driven filter that can learn me and tune to me uh, over time, almost like a Pandora. This is, I've given you the, you know, Blake Shelton radio or whatever. And yeah. over time, as I'm thumb-upping and thumb-downing musical experiences it can roll it in and help me to do one still discover new music because it trends like these other people i've given a thumbs up to i've given away some of my sovereignty and data so they know things that i'm liking and that's okay i want them to feed me more stuff but i still want pandora to be able or whoever to spotify to make the best program possible so that i can enjoy the development of technology I don't, yeah. I don't know that we figured it out yet. Lennox said, you know, one of the things, and he's not the only one, I've heard this many, some version of this many times, that technology moves so fast in these particular areas and it's just constantly accelerating that it's, um, you know, we're, we're gasping to catch up and just keep up with it, you know? I have a whole team of people that just try to keep up with it, to figure out what we should have on the show. Yeah, it's we're, hard. How do you, you determine right? that? Um, well, I want to talk about something I think you were yeah. right. Um, you you see this filter concept emerging. So like if we go back to caveman times of the internet, right? You had a like button, right? right? And it tried to do everything from that like button. And then we started following people. 
And then people were acting as our filters. Oh, I like the way Jocko thinks, or I like the way David Goggin thinks, or Joe right. Rogan. So I'm going to follow them, and then their content's going to populate my feed. I might like 60% of the way they think or whatnot. Right. So we're, we're kind of already organizing the internet like this. We're trying to do this. I just haven't seen specifically a set of tools that came that could come out that you could like subscribe to a certain culture or set of values and it would transcend the platform so that, you know, you, you see on Facebook now, which is great and, and Instagram, which is fantastic. They started doing this thing where, um, uh, well, first of all, I had suggested it in year one of the show and people told me I was stupid and then they started doing it in year four. <laughs> But they started uh, asking you, like, what what do you want to know more about? Like, click a tag or, or uh, you know, if you're scrolling through Facebook, it'll randomly be like, hey, do you want to see more of this? And it'll show like different tags that you can tap on. It'll ask, do you want to see less of this? And you can do different tags. So they're they're getting there. I think we're on that progression of the individual companies allowing you to to sort of uh, craft the algorithm the way more intentionally. Mm -hmm. Right. I think that that path we're already well, well down. Um, I just think it would be cool to like not have to train every single platform about, you know, because it takes a while for that Pandora to figure out the thumb up, thumb down um, deal. So and if it extracted into a third party service, that would be cool. Do you think the government should have more role than they do now in saying to um, when we say tech companies, we mean specifically the types of organizations that we're interacting with to, um, uh, you know, whether it's a news feed or some sort of a, a social construct where I'm, f I'm forming opinions. So they probably wouldn't impact our music. I don't want them telling me I can listen to the Blues Brothers, but not Depeche Mode or, you know, yeah. The Clash, but not Zeppelin or whatever. Um, how, how do you imagine that? Is there a role for them to play there or not so much? Um, so <laughs> how I feel about uh, that in general. So like I, I look at every single, I'll give some background. I look at every single issue and mm -hmm. I um, analyze it for its merits and I will typically form a strong opinion and it'll be loosely held based off the introduction of new information. I have right. no problem changing my mind on a dime because I've learned something new. Um, so I'm pretty open and transparent about that. Um, but uh, the government in general, I'm a fan of smaller government. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a, a fan of smaller government. If you want bigger local government, that could be cool. I'm definitely a fan of smaller federal government um, just because uh, that's our tax dollars that are funding it. And if you didn't make the government as big, you could probably do some more interesting thing. That's a whole different um, right. Well, that's kind of the libertarian view. That's yeah, similar it's very similar. Yeah. So as far as the government telling, you know, I, I think guidelines are great. Mm -hmm. I think guidelines are fantastic because there's a spectrum of people. There's multiple seven plus billion of us on this earth. And there's people that are in mental institutions and there are people that are winning Nobel prizes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're sometimes they're the same. Yeah, sometimes they're the same. Right. But you have that entire spectrum. So guidelines would be good. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so. I'm for guidelines. Um, I'm definitely for, you know, the cert, like you have to have regulation and things like that. But in mm -hmm. general, I'm, I'm smaller. I like smaller government. And uh, would I want the government to have a say in the content I consume? No. When it comes to the internet, my philosophy is everything should be open and free. 
mm-hmm. uh, not in a monetary sense and the mm-hmm. accessibility sense. Um, so like a- everything should be accessible and then you should filter accordingly because that's how the world actually works. Like, you know, there's alcohol, drugs, there's all sorts of things out there you can get yourself into trouble with and you sort of have to curate that um, even though you have access to it. So you have to you have to figure out what's right for you and what's right for your life. And so um, provided you're not um, hurting other humans physically, um, and I, I make a distinction with that physically because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm t- I tend to be a stronger person. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I think if you, if you make the world padded mentally, then you're robbing them the ability to develop uh, like strength mm-hmm. mentally. It's so like I had to develop a lot of strength through my entrepreneurial journey and through things that happened to me in my early life. And I would not want those experiences to go away in exchange of some easier life because I wouldn't have developed these, these skills. So I know that's like a lot of different things I just touched on, but, uh, I've, I want the internet to be open mm-hmm. and accessible. I want to let different communities determine what their values are and that will then filter the internet. But I just would like the internet to be like a giant server mm. that a uh, giant storage, giant right. hard drive. <laughs> but for me, it with, relates to the government. I I do like the internet to be open and free. Um, I do like some of the things that they're, you know, there are some elements of GDPR that I like. Look here, be aware of this stuff. Here's what you need to be aware of, the difference between security and privacy and how it plays out. There are some things, though, I feel like, at least here in the States, my personal opinion is I want the state involved in. I know for a fact that there's images that you can watch as a, a gentleman in your 30s with a certain amount of distance between your teenage years and your hormone development, your testosterone and development and your brain development and the neurons and whatever firing. And the overwhelming data is if you expose an 11 or 12 or 13 year old to pornography that looks like this or to these things like this, here's how it rewires their brain. It is a, here's the evidence that suggests that on a global level or whatever, or recreational marijuana. If you wanna indulge in that as an adult, this is the chemical response within your body as opposed to doing it as a kid. So there are some things that, um, and like all things, it's complicated. But my general rule is um, we govern at the federal level or at the highest level lightly and much more, you know, much more detailed the closer you get to actual people. And so I think we're still trying to figure that out. When it was academic sharing and the other things of the 80s and early 90s in the Internet, I don't think we need to be as cautious. And now where we see um, it can be exploited to impact um, people around us, the most vulnerable around us, if we're not careful. Uh, let's take the Tide Pod thing, right? Yeah. Um, I go back and forth on that based off of my mood. I, really? I mean, I have found myself feeling strongly both ways. Yes, we should stop people from doing stupid things. So let's remove those video challenges. That's some days I feel like that. Other days I feel like Darwin, like let it happen. Like... If they're they're actually going to eat that Tide Pod, like, and it's right. as public as it is that it's not a good thing to do, like, right. if, what's do we need them? <laughs> it sounds really sure. bad to say, but you know, like I said, I go back and forth, and yeah, I think some conspiracy. I guess what we're learning as a society, I like to look at it like this: if we step back from all of these conversations on technology, we are a society, a group of humans that are going through digital puberty. Mm-hmm. We got this tool 
it's new within the past 20 years as far as like the modern use of it mm-hmm. and the application with the common person. Um, and we're just figuring it out mm-hmm. and we're experiencing all the pain. So w- what I've been thinking more about lately, um, talking with our producers like Adam and, uh, you know, different things, uh, is that the my general default stance at this point in time is that the best way I can impact society is by having conversations to figure out what what we agree on because we've lost our um, as a country we've we've we're very we're very divided um, and we've lost our um, homogeneity if that's a word mm-hmm. you know so I, I'm less interested in arguing or discussing like more specific points than I am figuring out like what do we agree on like what do we agree on and um, those are tough conversations because people openly disagree about certain things like I mean if you look at some of the quotes from I think his name is Anad the CEO of Twitter I mean he's openly saying that we need to censor this stuff and control the conversation for the good of whatever mm-hmm. and it's like well yeah but I mean it's it's your values you're imposing on the world and forget just within America, look at the world at large. Right. And, and I've been trying to think of different ways like that, that some of these problems can be solved. One of them is like all the tech companies emerged from like one specific, like a very specific location mm-hmm. and that location had specific values. And then now the whole entire world uses those things. So um, I think, I don't think that's a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. I think that's just what happened. But I, I think that most people, like I said earlier about the filters, have, have done a better job of like putting the power into the hands of the local people, which I'm, I'm really grateful for. And also, to your point earlier, I know a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. And I would say 95, not even 80, 20, 95 plus percent of the time, they're the most compassionate, loving, intelligent people that are trying to push mankind forward. And this is sort of like the heat dissipation of a system operating that we're dealing with. It's like, you know, Einstein did, you know, his nine math problems and the 10th one was wrong and everyone focused on the 10th one. And he said, yeah, you completely ignored the, the nine things I did right, the nine problems I solved correctly. And you all focused on the one thing I didn't do. And we just do that as humans. So sometimes I just have to remind myself that we're living in the best time ever. We have the most amazing modern conveniences. We have the best health, the least deaths, like things are really, really awesome. And we just tend to focus on, on what's not there yet, which is fine. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, let's err on the side of, um, uh, less rag and imposition and work our way towards a thing that, you know, that works. I, I'm a big fan of the innovation that's coming out of, um, you know, the world of technology. Lennox talks about uh, his example was um, about the lungs. I've heard it in the uh, in the world of radiology that, you know, if if you put this data out there, um, you know, the AI and the machines can run through it and look at all of these markers and help give you a diagnosis, not just to what's going on, but what's the best possible documented path for you to flourish based upon your genetic makeup and your environment that you live in and all these other things. And some of that is um, many things are communicated to your point of, you know, they get 90, um, they get this overwhelming majority of things right. And then there are some things that are a burr. And I'm not trying to 
minimize some of the birds are pretty big birds, but they have these massive platforms. Um, I, I don't want to stop platforms because we're figuring out this other stuff. But I do think there's not so much about a platform, but I don't want my, you know, when I was a kid, my parents would drop me off at the library. It's a different time and era, but I could go to the library and we're there with, you know, some of our classmates and, um, but they didn't have to worry that if I got on the word processor that I could access something on the internet that wouldn't be allowed at their home. Or, um, and I don't mean reading the Lord of the Flies as opposed to, you know, whatever. There, there are things that sort of the community agreed upon. This is what happens in our, in our library. But it was, quote unquote, a safe space for whatever that is, as opposed to, you know, the internet can be a whole bunch of stuff. So I do think that there are some, and I don't know if it's, you know, the role of government exclusively, but whatever that combination of things, of filter, whatever, that, that helps us to um, um, check and make sure that, or ensure to the best of our degree, that we as a group of people agree on certain things. We agree on an age for drinking. We agree on an age for driving a vehicle, on an age accountability um, if you cause physical harm to somebody else, you know, and you go into the court system. So there, there are agreements that we come to. Um, I love the biggest idea of the internet is free and open, but there are some parts of it I think that, um, you know, we don't, we allow those vulnerable among us to be um, impacted in a way that I prefer not to. I don't know the answer to that is, but it's... Yeah, uh, most of these things don't have great answers. Like, yeah. you know, one of the... Um, the, the, the United States of America was founded on this concept of uh, freedom, free speech. <clears throat> and we all understand the conversation of like, okay, well, they're a private company and whatnot. Right. Um, my counter argument to that that I haven't heard from anywhere else publicly is when they want to enter other countries, they adhere to their culture. Mm. Yet they don't adhere to the culture in which the country they were born and operated is. And I get it. They, they want to, you know, you want to change culture or mm -hmm. it's going to eat. Culture evolves anyways. It's not mm -hmm. static. Right. So... Um, they're just hard conversations to have. And we're just at a point in life where, you know, we're at a, we're at a hard moment. And so I'm definitely not the person to scream and yell. Mm. Like, let's just say for, for, um, for conversation, David, that like, I have a very rigid specific set of views and mm -hmm. all of my views got classified as conspiracy and they all got shut down by every algorithm. Right. I've already right? written that down right over here. Joel's yeah. views are <laughs> conspiracy. <laughs> you got to, you got to train your ML later. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so like, let's say that happened. I would be like, you know, I'd be like, that sucks. But mm -hmm. then I would just say like, you know, what, what, what's the path out of here? Mm -hmm. What's the, like, what, what would need to change? Why did this happen? Why are, why am I thinking this way? Why are all my thoughts that I'm thinking this way so uh, unaccepted by these other entities? And I would just get like really introspective on it and try to figure out like what we can, what we can do, like mm -hmm. what the next move would be. Do I need to change some of my thoughts? Do I need to change some of my mind or am, am I right? And somehow I've just become the minority. Mm. Um, in which case the minority never goes away. Mm. Right. It's always this constant struggle from the 20 becoming the 80 and the 80 going back to the 20. Mm -hmm. So we're just in one of those transitions. And so, um, that's why, you know, there's some famous quote of a president, but, 
they said something along the lines like with your values like stand on a rock with everything else like weighed with the social fabric or whatever and uh you know i don't know they're really big giant conversations that are super super hard to have but i i i stand on the side of um, as far as the united states and being born and raised here and benefiting from the system and the economic entrepreneurial sense mm -hmm. um, there was a time where my family had like government assistance mm -hmm. right and uh i definitely was not born rich mm -hmm. and so you know a lot of um figuring things out a lot of hard work uh, and then you get, I like that system. I like mm -hmm. that that system exists and it's not a system like, uh, you know, some other systems. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm a fan of it and I'm a fan of, um, when you have ideas, the only way to battle those is better ideas. And if it was up to me, I wouldn't silence any ideas. Like mm -hmm. I'd say, all right, here are the ideas. And then you're just gonna, it'll, it'll figure out either way. It's going to settle out. Right. Right. I'd rather it just settle out with the core with the bedrock of it being free and open yeah. rather than trying to settle it out and try to control it and manipulate it on the way down with. So I think we're saying the same thing. I, yeah. I think we're saying the same thing. One of the things that I think you and I both gravitate towards is I love people that are able to critically think, um, they're elegant at expressing it or eloquent at expressing it. And, um, they don't necessarily agree with me. Like they're not unreasonable people. They just don't agree with me. And I'm drawn to frequently areas of technology from really smart people who say, look, here's how I believe um, this particular tech is really going to help us. And other people who are equally committed that are um, equally reasonable and researched and peer reviewed and credentialed say, well, have you considered these things? And, I, and I'm allowed to hear the contending against my predisposition to believe so I can chew on it. And it gets, sometimes um, it, it pries an idea out of my hand or it changes the shape of it or whatever. Other times it confirms what I already had come to resolve um, for me. I get more less concerned about the opportunity here contending ideas than I do people that just aren't interested in... Um, an idea being challenged. And I don't mean beyond, like, I don't need to read a communist manifesto again to know that, you know, I really am pro-ethical capitalism because of all of these reasons and all of the sins and successes of it. I've resolved that. Until there's something new that's not in one of the manifestos or whatever, I had this interest, I'm not changing my mind. We were just in Miami about six weeks ago and I met so many people from Cuba that were the most vocal people I ever heard or recently heard pro USA, pro capitalism, pro they're like, look, we can tell you what it's like to live in a regime that's much different than this. A woman from Haiti that was my Uber driver was having a conversation. Um, I didn't even know how we got on the topic, but she was so excited to be in the United States because we had a justice system. All I hear from some parts is how horrible our justice system is. She said, are you kidding me? Where I'm from, you don't get a jury of your peers. I, and she went through two or three examples of gross injustice against women 
and gross injustice against certain indigenous groups because of their social status and their indigent uh, compared to, and they were all the same color people. This wasn't that, but it was ethnical, ethnic, ethnical. We're going to invent words while we're here. I love that word. Yeah, why not? Today's word is ethnical. Um, Right after we watch Fraggle Rock. But anyway, so it's, you know, it's this stuff. And it just reminds me, we are the greatest, we have, and I don't mean to rest on it, but we have so much opportunity and so much great things here. And it was built on a foundation of private property, free speech, free enterprise, entrepreneurship, opportunity. And so we also have a challenge, you know, a requirement to safeguard those things as we go. But I think that the challenge, at least as it comes to tech is, Sometimes it can race so far ahead, so fast uh, ahead of us that bef- we're. it's not just that we're trying to play catch up like in a newspaper era or in a telegraph era or the age of steam. Okay, let's change how we're doing this stuff. You know, famously, uh, rivers catching on fire from kerosene just being dumped out and destroying and, you know, um, and so the world had to respond and legislate and fix that. Uh, but it wasn't, um, the, the consequences weren't so dire that they couldn't be rolled back pretty quickly. It, in some cases, it feels like, wow, we could really get ahead of ourselves with some of this uh, technology that, um, uh, you know, how do we keep up with it? And if you're a government institution or even a local civil group, how do we keep up with all of the potential interruptions? Interesting times. Why are we in the tech business? <laughs> Because we love, love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's, you're, you get to solve problems. I find most of the people in tech are extraordinarily reasonable. And like you can, I have no problem taking the, like I can have a very strong view about something and you can say, hey, we want to debate this. And I'm like, okay. And they're like, well, we want you to debate against that idea and mm. we're going to stand for it. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll go debate the other side of it because, you know, people have good intentions and often and there's usually great ideas on both sides yeah (laughs) and there's usually some logic behind both and so i don't write i don't write people off that don't think exactly like me because every time i've ever dug deep into the other person's argument they have some some part of of something i agree with or truth or a good point patrick allett um, this professor I was telling you about blew my mind the other day when he said, at what point in the American Civil War was the last point that the South thought they were right? And I started thinking about, like, what do you mean? And he said, as a historian, we all today, hopefully, would look at the abhorrence or the condition of slavery, slavery in horror. This is a horrific thing. At some point, human being, and it's so easy for us then to project upon classes of people, um, you know, a particular motive or whatever. And he said, one of the things, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but uh, um, so I'm articulating as I was thinking about it. He said, if you think about it, pick any, he just chose that one because that's part of, you know, our recent tragic history. But he said, if you think about that, when the people went to war, um, some, the, they thought they were in the right. They, oh, people yeah. don't go die for something they don't think 
they're right about. Like, this is right. This is right for me. It's right for my neighbor. It's right for these other things. And this happens, this isn't white America. This is the whole world has done this over all of history time. and time, yeah. right? And, um, and so it's that... It's that thing that um, at you know at some point whatever the turning point was was it because they lost the war or was it because of you know whatever we get through this at what point did um, you know when I think of um, you know the great battles of the Lord of the Rings or on and on and on these great tales when did one group believe that they were in the right and the other believe come to understand they were in the wrong um, is that just because we get to write history or how does that work? And I, I just think that, um, you know, one of the things that Lennox said that I also thought was really interesting as it relates to AI was, man, I want to encourage people that have a, a, an integrity and an ethic or whatever to be in this world, to be in the world of any of these technologies so they can bring a perspective where we're working for the common good and human flourishing and, um, and how do we resolve that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. All right. Well, let's move on to something else. Let's uh, spend some time on that. What do you think about, um, as you, um, one of the things that came up with some of my guests recently that I thought was pretty cool was, uh, you know, Congress last year passed uh, the big infrastructure bill. And one of the areas of that that was really interesting was there is, uh, I think it's $65 billion, I might get the number wrong, but about $65 billion set aside for telecom infrastructure. And so I ha- hosted a guy named Pat. Um, Doug Money, who is a writer and an author um, and a speaker whose expertise, among other things, is um, telecom in general, but satellite in particular. But one of the things he talked about was a lot of that um, infrastructure is going to go to fiber and how it really could change if we can get fiber extended out to the ag tech communities out in the rural areas. If we I could, have it, and I am. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I've moved from Florida, so I bought a little farm in five acre farm in uh, Tennessee, and um, built a, built the studio on it. And uh, it has gigabit internet speed fiber, and it's like in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> he he said so. Just like what you're experiencing, he said. Just imagine if you're getting if you're able to roll tech out that can take advantage of doing things at the speed of light at in ninety eight to ninety nine percent little. Secret that a lot of people don't know is that there's a significant portion of even in America that doesn't even have 4G yet, much less real Wi-Fi or um, fiber or anything like that. It's not even um, heard of in their areas, but that this infrastructure could do that. And so now what does that mean for us? Does it does it set 5G aside except for in very specific applications? Does it... Um, how does it change our world? How does it change the opportunity for autonomous vehicles? And you know, one of the one of the things he reminded me of, I haven't fact checked, but it sounds interesting. Um, do you know who one of the largest robot or autonomous vehicle makers in America is? I'm sure you've probably heard this, so it's probably uh, not as fun. No, John Deere. Oh yeah, because all their uh-huh. tractors, you know, you you turn that thing loose. It's a perfect environment for autonomous vehicles because it's just a it's fields or it's these other things. And um, you don't have to worry about public roads or whatever. It's your stuff or your space. And whether you always operate them autonomously or not, you can map it out and you can do all of this other stuff. And he said, when you can get fiber out there, there's so many more suite of 
opportunity for them. Yeah. Have you had um, many telecom people on talking about future tech and telecom or any of that yeah. area? Well, I mean, I had um, Kyle on and we talked a little bit, um, Verizon CTO, mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about um, ultra wideband technology um, because like I, like I said, I'm kind of out and I'm an hour west of Nashville and okay. I'm probably like 15 minutes from like a town. Right. Um, so I'm kind of like out there, but I have modern conveniences and grocery stores and everything, movie theaters, all that stuff. Don't they call that Memphis if you're like an hour west of Nashville? That's not like a real town. It's kind of a town. No, but... it's Clarksville, if you know like the area. But um, um, I don't. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's northwest. Oh, okay. All right. Northwest. Um, okay. Yeah. So uh, I forgot what I was saying. You're talking about <laughs> Ultraband, Wi-Fi, yeah, yeah, so, and Kyle. Yeah, so I, ha- I happened to get the UW show up on my phone like a day or two before I talked to Kyle. And I'm like, right. oh, this is so cool. I'm going to ask him what it is. And, uh, you know, they tested out in certain cities, but it's super fast 5G. And they just opened up a new end of the uh, spectrum. So that was pretty cool. We also got to talk about the crazy people that think that 5G caused COVID. <laughs> 5G caused COVID? Oh, you know, that's a thing. That's like a I did not know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How do you get all this stuff? My filters uh, must be working in my infrastructure because I'm not getting any of these. I refuse. Honestly, it's mostly my wife's mom groups. <laughs> like this information flows between the women really, really well. And oh, so gosh. I get most of my news from her. Um, and and so, yeah, that's that was one of the things we talked about and how the electromagnetic spectrum works and, you know, that it's not causing COVID. <laughs> yeah. And some other things. But yeah, so we've got to talk a lot about that and telecom. Um, I don't know what other telecom stuff. I mean, I've had people on that have explained to me how the packets of this Zoom call Mm -hmm. make it from one location to another. And I thought that was fascinating because I learned all about these different different hubs where information is exchanged. And I've learned all about... um, uh, the underwater sea cables, yeah. and then the, they have the robots that will actually go fix the underwater sea cables, yeah. um, those giant fibers. So, yeah, as far as communication, those those two are probably one of the most um, relevant ones. That's a really interesting about the sea Well, there are a few things. One, um, so I, I've had a number of content delivery network folks, so they're from uh, experience with Akamai and some of these other really big organizations that help make sure that when you're watching Stranger Things out there at the soccer field in Clarksville, that you've got a great experience on your mobile device or or whatever, because it doesn't have to come from Nashville or Louisville or Memphis or whatever. That they you know they've got this ability to deliver that um, near edge or edge, so it's really cool. And I only ever get like I don't know. 1500 on Spotify to listen to it and 42 on YouTube to watch it. But when we, but I'm fascinated by it. I just, how all of that works, um, the future of applications and application development, how that works, the things that have not been solved in 5G, the potential's amazing. But there's so many engineering problems. Like a lot of times we think of 5G working like Wi Fi works. But if that ambulance that wants to use a hologram using 5G isn't on the Verizon network, well, then they can't take advantage of the Verizon cell that's there. They have to be on, um, you know, whoever's providing the service and it doesn't go very far and it doesn't penetrate buildings very well. And all of these limitations that are, 
they're not impossible to overcome, but you, we've just got to work through the engineering problems that we're going to continue to, to work on. Um, I think it's fascinating. On the other hand, you know, we've gotten um, a number of folks from, you know, MIT talking about smart fabric, about how not oh, just, cool. yeah, it, I didn't even know this, but they're making clothing now, not just devices. I don't know where my Apple Watch is, but not just devices, but clothing that, um, uh, in particular, um, it was Christina Chase, Dr. Christina Chase, who um, runs, started and um, co-chairs the uh, uh, sport gaming and data analytics lab at MIT, and how they work with, um, whether it's professional sport or amateur sport, which are wildly different experiences on what they will allow and what data can be collected. Who owns the data? Do you own it? Does the team own it? Does the league own it? Does the stadium own it? How do you manage it? How do you protect it? It's all this other stuff. But one of the things that came out of that was absolutely fascinating to me was the fabric, not just the device, but the fabric. There are organizations out there making smart fabric to help you as a human being as you're moving, exercising, um, giving you almost feedback like a cyborg, like just all of that, but in fabric, not an exoskeleton. And just as we learn more and more about this stuff, on the one hand, I get anxious, well, who, what are they doing with that data? Who's got it? And how do we secure it and protect it and keep it private? At the same time, how do I take advantage of this to live an outstanding, you know, the best life I can live? I didn't know about the smart fabric. I want to look into that a lot. Well, it looks like you're wearing smart fabric right now. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think the smart fabric is is awesome. I mean, I remember years ago when people were trying to like somehow embed LED type stuff into fabric. I remember I've seen some of those types of, of clothes, but I haven't looked into smart fabric in a long time. What would um, you do with the LEDs and fabric? I suppose if you got near a music source, it could start flashing lights like Christmas Vacation, and you could, yeah. you know, be the life of the party. I don't know what you do with LEDs and fabric. You could change the one I had seen forever ago was like it was a square on their on their chest, and like you could change the symbol from your phone, and it was like a very oh. low res situation, but right. like an icon essentially. So you could like change some of that. That that was the last time that I saw um, like hung out in the smart fabric space. Huh. Yeah, no, this is uh, different than that. Although, I suppose if you got the cheap version of that, you could just like have a handle like slots and you could change it and it would just change the, you know, the blind. So it would be a different ship, but mine would probably um, gunk up halfway down and look like half a dinosaur and half a sailboat probably wouldn't work that good. But no, she was, uh, she was talking about the evolution of smart fabric. And it, again, comes back to AI and um, data analytics and, and how these things are, um, uh, helping us to perform better. What's our experience while we're sleeping? What's our experience while we're exercising? And, and not just at the device level, but more and more uh, these unique things, but also how do they integrate in the world around us? How do they inform our decisions? We didn't get into it, but as I've talked to some other folks, I'm wondering, okay, but what happens when to get my company health uh, care, I have to agree to download that information kind of like in your car today for insurance, you know, you get the discount today, but when does it become mandatory that in order to get insurance from me, I've got to see your driving habits. 
And yeah. um, what and, you know today we st- we have some of that because they go off of your credit score and your income and certain you know whatever the algorithm is the actuary tables to say oh somebody in these circumstances they're this kind of a risk. What happens is it when we get more of that electronic data and it becomes more surveillance. I had a good conversation about that. <laughs> oh, let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, so it's a it's a hard conversation, but um, so there was this issue with. Uh, Apple when they released like the Apple credit card and and Steve Wozniak came out and he was like hey um, it's not you know it's biased because they gave me a higher credit limit than my wife <clears throat> and she makes more money on paper than me and so it's biased towards men or whatever mm-hmm. and a number of other people came out and said the same thing so they went you know knocked on the door and they're like hey we got to figure this out why is this happening and what's ha- what was happening was the algorithms were analyzing uh, patterns of behavior and data. They had no concept of gender, sex, whatever. Right. So it just turned out that male purchase habits, you know, yielded on the actuarial table less of a risk in that profile um, for credit rating than the other different personas. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, some people, based off of their purchase, some a lot of it disproportionately affected women. Mm-hmm. So, like, women were getting much less credit according to this algorithm. So then they, they saw that and then they started manipulating the algorithm to make it equal. Right. And I took the controversial standpoint of you shouldn't do that. Right. And the reason why, I mean, first of all, hundred percent equality for women. Right. Like, come on. I, I have three daughters. I'm a hundred. Yeah. I'm all in. Yep. All in equal right. opportunity. You know, there should be, it should be good. Um, but as an investor, <laughs> Be patterns of purchase behavior linked to risk that has no gender data. Like you're going to tell me now as an investor, mm-hmm. right? And I could take both sides of it. Right. Um, like you could tell me as an investor, I'm going to lose more money to, to, to somehow right this wrong, mm-hmm. you know, because it's going to be a higher credit risk and I'm going to buy, by the standards of their systems, I'll lose more money. Right. And uh, so that's a tough one. Because I agree with both sides. Right. It needs to be equal, but the investors shouldn't be losing money on like some sort of uh, mission. Right. Uh, and, you know, maybe what you would do is you would inform those investors and in right. that fund and people who wanted to support that fund of credit uh, money would, and, and they, they cared about it being more equal, could opt in. And I think equally the investors. Um, who were guaranteed or told that their investment would be based off of risk profiles? Um, I don't. I think they should be let, allowed to come out of that investment, right. um, especially if you start manipulating the algorithm for for things other than the things that de- actually determine the risk. So that was a tough conversation to have, but um, I, I think I handled it pretty well. <laughs> well, it's it, it you know just. On, Two things. One, if it had been on age, I wonder, like, if we found that people under 30 were greater risk, it wasn't about anything other than age. I don't know how many people would get particularly offended. In fact, we'd say, well, that probably makes sense. You know, people of this age group, um, more mature mature or less risk or whatever, it's a better investment. Or if it were, um, you know, not a... um, socially protected group, if it had been, you know, males or if it had been a particular type of male or ethnicity of male or whatever, 
that isn't, you know, eh, maybe, you know, if, if this group was, um, you know, a better return. I don't know, back to your point in the very beginning of our conversation about um, let the marketplace run and see where it works out. I think it's yeah. as long as it's transparent of conversation. We, we even in my industry, you know, um, or, or let's set mine aside, let's just talk about insurance. As long as somebody understands, look, if you come and buy insurance from me, insurance company ABC, if we, had, if we get hit by um, a Katrina in a part of the country it's going to take all of our resources to do all the payouts and hire everybody and do whatever. If we get a Katrina across the United States, we're all out of business because we can't absorb that big of a hit. So they just have to be transparent about the risk you're inheriting. Now you get to decide as an investor or whatever, if I find it um, morally repugnant to do things differently, you know, to not invest in this group because I want to invest in this group, or we as a community – there are some college sports where this team or this division or whatever is not going to generate as much TV ad or as much return on our investment for scholarships. But we feel um, the community and the board of regents and all of us, all of the board, feel compelled to give equal opportunity to our athletes, regardless, athletes regardless of gender or whatever. You could participate or not participate, but the idea is to be transparent. So I like that yeah. idea. Unfortunately, we're in a spot many times where when the data is inconvenient to um, our perspective, where we're trying to manipulate an equality of outcome, not an equality of opportunity, man, it feels like uh, we get in a lot of trouble. To, you know, when data feels good, it's an easy conversation to oh, have. You can't, you can't do outcome. You have to do opportunity. Like no, I am 100%. That's yeah. my ideal is it's opportunity. When we try to manipulate the outcome, it's it's never worked. There's not an economist that I'm familiar with that shows that that works. It, it just doesn't work. But it's, um, you know, I, I don't know that I'm, I think I'm an optimistic realist. I don't want to say I'm an optimist, but I try to be an optimistic realist in that, look, man, I let's just let... that's why we get along. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to... There are times when, you know, if I'm the Samaritan walking down the road in the famous parable and I look over, I don't know that it fits on some actuary table that I should go over and help that person. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, the, in, this, in this setup is against my people and we've got a longstanding feud or whatever. It does make you a better human being. It does, I think, it, in my heart would be that I would be that, you know, something like that to go help. That transcends an actuary table. I get it. But in terms of going to the marketplace and saying, I want to be an investor in things that are going to generate a profit that are moral and ethical, I want the facts. Don't hide the facts and don't try to manipulate something from me. Um, yeah. Just let me know and then let me make an informed decision. I mean, there, there were definitely, I am 100% certain that there were women in that algorithm that had purchasing habits that made them not a risk. It, right. it, it didn't say it affected every woman. It just disproportionately like affected an, enough women for it to become a, a conversation in the space. And so um, I think if one of the things that you do is you sort of like rob the behavior and the incentive for them to have better purchasing habits and better behavior patterns or different, who's to say it's better, but like, mm. I don't know. I, I'm, I don't, like I said, I'm super torn on it. <laughs> I can, I'm like, I can't 
I'm like 50 50 on it, but it's, but yeah, I like, I like your over, uh, your, your analysis of it in the sense that just the answer is going to be transparency until we get a better answer. Yeah. I, I think feel like transparency. I apply my personal ethic to it. Can't be immoral or illegal, um, as defined by my community or the government or those things. I think that's the bare minimum guardrails. And then from there I make a decision. And if I, for me personally, if I can't resolve it to my satisfaction, I just don't invest. I just don't participate. I move yeah. on to something else. There's other opportunities. Um, I mean, anyway, I pass we on investments far more than I invest. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah. Hey, I, you started earlier. Um, we were talking about, um, or you said something that piqued my interest about 3d printing. Mm. And you, um, can you tell us a little bit about, by, by way of introduction to that topic, I've had um, Gene Bolin on, who was at the time chief scientist for an organization, went to NASA and said, we want to help you with um, new manufacturing, 3D printing. And they said, you know what you really help us with is help us to print food. He said, food? They wanted to work with NASA because to 3D print organs, as you probably know, many of them... Men, you know, 3D printing is an additive process. And in order to do it, you have to have some sort of framework. Well, a lot of organs don't have a framework. There's, there's no way to, to create this organ and then pull a frame out of it. And in gravity, it will collapse. So they have to get it up to low Earth orbit so that they can print so there's no gravity and they can do the... That was the premise. And NASA said, yeah, if we're going to get a colony in Mars, we, we don't need advanced manufacturing of parts, what we need is food. Can you make it savory? Can you do it like this where you've got the chemicals and we just do it? I thought it was a really interesting thing. So that's got me thinking a lot about 3D printing in a wide variety of things. What's been your experience with your guests on the show? What are they talking about? Well, did they do it? Did they make the 3D? Yeah, they, um, they created it. Well, they're, they're trying to. You know, the, NASA has um, these requirements. One, it's got to be edible. Two, it's got to be safe. Three, it's got to be light enough to, you know, with the hardware and the chemicals. But, you know, the, at, if, assuming those are table stakes, it doesn't have to look. It'd be great if it chicken looked like chicken or whatever, but it has to have two things or it's not going to be a success. Taste of it and the texture of it. The look... Is less important. Smell is probably more important, but texture and taste are the are the two most, and it's a work in progress. They don't have it, but he just I, it was a compelling conversation to say this is how they at that time, and I believe they're still working on that program. He's with a different organization now, but that program's still going on. How do we solve long term, not just space travel, but colonies? is to be able to 3D print food. We don't have to transport food. We want to tra transport the amino acids or the, you know, the yeah. various chemicals and then build some elements of it. All I heard was we may have future bacon, and that's what I'm yeah. really interested in. I'm going to send them an email and ask for some pizza. <laughs> <laughs> their, their IoT devices, microwaves in particular, where they use uh, cameras along with um, this idea. I, I can't wait to see them combined of the 3D printing, but... You know, when you go to cook, the camera, not so much the temperature or other things, but a camera can tell you if you eat something, the algorithm will go back or the AI will go back and look at, okay, the camera watched the texture of this food change and it can draw so many inferences from it. It saves all the barometric pressure, the time it cooked, the temperature it cooked at, what it looked like, and it can replicate 
using a camera and another device, it'll start cooking the food. It'll create the same environmental conditions and cook the food, adjusting for thickness or, or whatever the other variables are so the chicken breasts aren't exactly the same or the bacon or whatever. And the camera will keep cooking until it sees that they appear to be exact same and assuming all other variables are the same. I'm like, wow, wait till we can 3D print and put that technology together. That would definitely be about are they human flourishing. Pre-orders? <laughs> Not that I know of. Oh, okay. I would probably be a good investment to bet on then because at my age and weight, I'm like, what the heck? Let's just let it all go. I'll eat that all day long. <laughs> so you, you've had some 3D printing folks on, you yeah. and Adam? Yeah, so a um, couple ones in that neighborhood. Uh, the 3D printing of houses was pretty cool. We, I was on Zillow one weekend, and <clears throat> I saw this house for sale, and it was said like the number one. It was like one of the most popular properties on Zillow. And it was 3D printed. Wow. And so I said, well, that's interesting. Let's go talk to those people. So we had them on the show. They literally built a massive 3D printer. And they were like construction workers and technologists kind of came together. Yeah. And they 3D printed with cement uh, a house. And then they sold it on Zillow. We have someone we're trying to coordinate right now to come on the show. Um, I cannot believe I can't remember her name. Too many names coming through. Um, their organization prints schools in third world countries in particular, and they don't do it out of concrete. And they, what they did was, um, or what their big idea is, you, um, one of the biggest barriers to success is education. You know, we've heard this, especially in the world of um, disruptive context of future work. If technology is going to take over menial tasks in the West, it's less of a big deal because we'll retrain. And we've done this all of human history where technologists at heart, human beings are, we retrain, we don't, you know, whatever, we move into other jobs. But if that, if there is very limited other things and you're in a different part of the world, that could be devastating. And so one of the things that this group is doing is um, they can 3D print in a few weeks, if not days, huts, or schools out of um, recycled material and other material. And they are doing it in parts of the world right now that have a high solar uh, content. So they can put solar panels and these other things on them. It's this really cool little ecosystem. But instead of having to source all the materials for concrete, which may be much harder, or or these other things, and it takes a lot longer, and there's a lot more complexity. It's expensive, yeah. It's expensive, and so they set up very inexpensively, very simply, um, the construction level uh, 3D printer, and it goes out there and builds them a schoolroom in uh, not too much time. It's unbelievable idea. I love to see those kinds of things because it feels like technology in action that's helping human beings flourish. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you're exactly right. The education is a huge barrier to entry um, and making education more widely accessible. It, honestly, it makes me really happy. I mean, look at the different countries coming online. If you go to Africa, woo, man, that country is just beaming with energy. Yeah. And they're, they're just literally everything's changing for them. And that's exciting for, for me. Um, both in the fact that now we have more people for pushing technology forward mm-hmm. um, and the fact that, you know, uh, w- one of the things I think is pretty cool, and this also connects back to the me having gigabit internet out here, 
and Africa. Let's put them together. Let's um, do it. I've gotten to talk a couple of times with Andela. Andela is a great company mm. and they have places in Africa there. I think they're funded by Zuckerberg's foundation and a couple other um, philanthropic like type companies, but they, they're definitely like, like for-profit business, but Andela, um, they will go teach these communities how to program, like open up a, a store or whatever, a school, and they'll start teaching them how to program. And then you can, you know, uh, hire those developers and have them join your team and, and stuff like that. Um, I think that that is fantastic because they get taught the best information, hmm. right? Like I've been around, I'm 34, you know, I first time I wrote a line of code was probably eight, right? Mm-hmm. So like I've gotten to see like the progression from that perspective. It's right. somewhat narrow, but I've, I've gotten to see it. And uh, man, I have made so many mistakes and I've watched concepts come out and fail and others come out and succeed. And then everybody sort of figures out like, you know, it's, it's coming pretty common knowledge in the product community, how to develop a product. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's not, it's not all like the wild west there anymore. Um, there are definitely proven processes to make good products. Uh, and so the fact that they're getting taught those first um, is really exciting because that's just going to make us go forward faster and have higher quality products in general. And, um, you know, adding more people to the global economy uh, increases the wealth of everybody. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's great for that. But I think that's similar to, you know, out here in, in Tennessee where I'm at, they waited 10 years to get Internet. And when they got it, it was fiber, but it was the stuff that like literally was built last year. So this technology out in rural Tennessee is more advanced (laughs) likely than like some of the stuff in a major metro city because that stuff's got, you know, backbones that are decades old. Yeah. Yeah. Super old technology that they've just constantly like retrofitted and swapped out and like figured out how to do it. Um, But this stuff is like state of the art amazing high quality fresh lines just ran and so you know there there's some benefits um because as these new populations emerge whether it's like locally in our country and and states or in places like africa they're starting with like the best available stuff um and and i think that that is is pretty cool because it's like us getting to watch the progression in real time so let's use that as a segue to talk about future work a little bit. Okay. Um, I I don't know why Tulsa, Oklahoma is stuck in my head. I'm sure I heard it a year ago or so, but I've got friends that have moved to Costa Rica. I've got um, folks that are going to communities like what you're doing in Tennessee. And these communities, many of them are very proactively building in this world-class leading edge infrastructure and saying, come live here and work anywhere you want. And when Microsoft's commercial meta gets rolled out and um, meta's personal metaverse and these other things get rolled out, you literally at the speed of light, you have access to all of these things, but you have a quality of life locally. This is what the traffic's like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or our riverfront, or a cost of living, or you know, the commute is, down the hall into your bedroom. But when you're looking outside, you're not looking at the smog of this city or the traffic and right. social problems of that city. You're, you're looking at, you know, here's this world that it looks like. And because we're this highly interconnected world and very few people are further than a couple hours from an airport that can get them anywhere in the U.S., if not probably one hop away from anywhere in the world, 
what a what a quality life. In my own company, I've got a number of people that have retired from the Bay Area and moved up into Idaho or Wyoming or Montana or out of Boston into, you know, more inwards. And it's not that they're not anti those places. They just want a quality of life that's a different experience. And they've got the back end infrastructure now. And with the infrastructure bill, I think it's just going to get more and more exponentially rolled out. When you're talking to CTOs or CIOs, I know a lot of their focus is the products and services and how they're going to serve their community. But when they think about future work for themselves or for their constituents, what are the conversations that they're having and are they embracing this idea? Yeah, so future work conversations tend to lean around automation of jobs um, and what we're going to do about it and Mm. how it will impact us. As you mentioned earlier, well, humans have been changing jobs since the beginning of time. Yeah. And so uh, that's just a natural evolution. What it could be different now is the rate at which those jobs turn over. Mm. So that could have a new sort of impact to us. And um, be- because of that, that is like a good area that we have government. Like that's mm-hmm. like a good thing that we have government there. It's also a good thing that we have government. Like I liked, um, you know, they spent a lot of money incentivizing companies like SpaceX uh, mm-hmm. to to make their uh, internet. And they spent a lot of money incentivizing uh, companies like, you know, here the fiber company or whatever to mm-hmm. roll fiber out to rural areas. So to me, that makes me super happy that mm-hmm. like those things exist and we're, you know, improving our infrastructure. Um, but uh, I, I sort of lost track of the question. Well, uh, we were talking about future work and you said it's focusing yeah. mostly on automation. Yeah. So loss of jobs and the rate at which we lose them tends to be the question and how do we ease the pain of the transition like if it grows exponentially Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden like you know we find ourselves here in three years and programming just became an automated thing Mm -hmm. right or at least it automated enough to have cause an 80 percent loss in those jobs right because that's all you need it doesn't have to be fully automated it just has to be automated enough human in the loop slightly right so at the rate in which we drop those jobs off and what will happen to our economies. And so those are some really big questions. Um, and they're hard because again, policy happens in hindsight, mm-hmm. right? So they see the problems big enough, like seatbelts is a great example. You see enough people dying in car wrecks, the government steps in and mandates the seatbelt thing but for the auto manufacturers and then the laws on the road. So like, we're just in a point where it's gonna be hard. Um, and I encourage everybody to just pay close attention. like. You know, you mentioned earlier, we were talking about content and accessibility and what kids can see. Mm-hmm. I think if anything, the advancement of technology has forced parents to be more involved with their kids. You have to be a better parent, right? Mm-hmm. There's more things that they can get into. You know, in the 70s, they could get into whatever was in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Today, they can get into whatever's in the world. <laughs> yeah. They can get into the dark web and have stuff shipped to them. You know what right. I'm saying? So I think one of the positives silver lining out of all of the potential difficulties of the advancement of technology is um, closer family units um, and and better parenting and i and i think that falls in line with like other views that i have that you know we should push stuff down locally and what's like one of the smallest local groupings we have and that's a that's a household family right yeah so we just we push stuff down locally and push power down like i would love to see um 
Well, let me let me ask you this: in the first industrial revolution, yeah. So this is one of the things that Professor Allen and I talked about. Um, you know, so many people lost their job because their job was to physically pump water out of a mine, and a steam engine replaced them. We used to um, hundreds. No, hundreds, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people picked cotton, some of them slaves, some of them indentured servants, a lot of them just poor people out there. And we invented mechanization that went out there and replaced them or fill in the blank. We, uh, my buddy was digging, a, um, had to run a, a line to the side of the house. And at our age, we just can't get out there with a the shovel anymore. So he went up to the big box store, hired a ditch witch and in 20 minutes had a line going from the curb for the water up to the house and then dump the gravel in and whatever. So all of that automation or not automation mechanization in those cases, um, displaced entire industry. We used to cut ice blocks out of a lake and you had people whose jobs it was to load the ice into the back of a wagon. And then you had these big warehouses that stored the, like we have so many examples of, um, world like that. And in every single case, I remember listening to this podcast talking about margarine wars, about how margarine was the evil of America. It was funded, of course, by the dairy community and people were arrested and put in prison for years because they were subverting, you know, blah, all these other things or hemp industry by the cotton industry. And I, I'm wondering, I'm trying to be my realist, not just a blind optimist, but it feels like from the day the rowers got pissed off because the drummer and the rower was like, what's that big cloth thing they're pulling up over the boat here? You know, what's that all about? Yeah. A sail. How do we, how do we, when we look back and there's every generation does one of three things. They think they discover sex. They think they discover music and they think they discovered the, you know, the tech that's going to end all things and our way of life is going to crumble. And it, Almost never, it certainly never come. You know, the human human beings are still here, and we're still figuring it out. We're still innovating. How do we, how do we, driven by data, um, reconcile that? And I'm curious with the executives on, um, like I just and I just want this. I know I'm rambling, but I get one last point. I had Dan Vasser on. He's a supply chain guru, Kroger for many years. He's at Racetrack now a lot of experience in logistics and um, supply chain. And our conversation was around why, why is there such, ma- especially in the food side, such massive supply chain. This is before there's stuff going on in Europe. And he said, um, people, nobody wants to be in the supply chain. We don't, we have a truck driver problem, not because of autonomous vehicles, but people don't want to drive trucks. It's not the government sending them checks where they just don't want to do it. Those jobs are menial tasks. You know, we will love to see automation or mechanization uh, come in or or make pizza boxes for us or do those other things because we cannot find people who want to do those jobs um, and keep those jobs. Um, but he felt like we're a long way from machines easily solving those problems. Is the tech there? Sure. Can we afford it? Is it in the near term? I've got numbers decades. for you. Yes, love I to did hear. A lot, I did a lot of research on this. We just recently wrapped up a multi multi episode series on this. Um, there's no argument. <clears throat> greater, I think, than like a hundred years. There, so all the experts that talk about this, no one, I, I believe this is the cutoff. 
80% of them are arguing between like 5, 10, 15 to 50 years okay. like in the next 50 year range that we have tech, um, tech that can be replace humans, uh, mm-hmm. knowledge workers, just consciousness, replication mm-hmm. type mm-hmm. concept. Um, and then I don't think there's anyone that's, that's, that's out beyond 100 years. So this is definitely something we could see in our lifetimes mm-hmm. um, from, from the general consensus of the experts today. So when you say it's not just automation, it's that they're sentient. We're general, well, a full-on general need, AI. All, all you need is just, um, I mean, what do we do as humans? It's pretty simple. I mean, we understand our surroundings and we take action and we learn from that action, right? I got people so, skills. Get my TPS yeah. reports from that fax machine to that fax machine. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, like, it, it, it will likely happen. Mm. Um Unless if we destroy ourselves first, that's also a possible scenario. But, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, you know, making making good decisions based off of data. I mean, I think that, that happens so rarely as humans. I mean, we make most of our decision based off of emotion. Just look at how we spend our money on a national or global level. Right. It's crazy. Um, if we use data, we'd be spending our money very differently. Uh, we, we're just humans. And so we have to figure out um, how to, how to how to do that in the face of this changing technology. And we have to figure out like how to care for an entire population when their jobs are automated overnight. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have to solve these problems, but typically as, as human beings, we don't solve these things until they're massive issues in front of our faces. Uh, but I would like to say the general conversation of automation and losing your job. Um, I am definitely rare uh, being an entrepreneur um, and in the sense that um, and I've, I've, I've been trying to come to grips with it <laughs> because, you know, most people I run into are, are not mm. right. So like when something happens to me, my default reaction is ownership of it and how to get out of it. Mm. And a lot of people, their default action is like complaining about it. Mm-hmm. Right. So when, you know, I, I have thoughts like the following, um, you know, when people talk about job automation, like who, who, when you were born, walked up to you and guaranteed that you could work one job and that's all you would have to learn for the rest of your life. Like who told you that? Like, it's obviously there's some, and it's implied to some degree because of the society. And that's like, you see it happening. And so you think, Oh, it's going to happen to me, but there's like no one guaranteeing that to you. You you know, you didn't get, you know, that's um, a generational thing that came out of the generation coming out of world war two before that, that didn't happen very often. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, it did to a lesser extent, at least in my experience, but to a lesser extent, it's for sure a thing of the Industrial Revolution from the yeah. late 1800s. So I think this place is a heavier emphasis. It's also, here's the thing, it's a beautiful thing for people who um, who want to try and who want to put effort in, right? Because if you take ownership and you you pay attention to what's happening in the marketplace and you figure out how to bring value to others, you can stay relevant, right? Mm. And if you can stay relevant, you have a job. And if you have a job, you can provide for your for your family and, and so on and so forth. So uh, I think all of this places more emphasis on individual ownership. And um, I think that that's a good thing. Personally, yeah. I like it. You know? I may have to talk to different, <laughs> expand my circle of uh, CTOs and CIOs. It's certainly not as large as yours, but I there's a lot of conversation about automation of of um, tasks. You see that in material handling, 
um, accuracy and inventory, and you know, you a, a robot doesn't uh, care RPA. if that RPA. What's RPA? Uh, robotic process automation. Yeah. You go it, into a company. I'm a consultant, consulting firm. I, I analyze data across your, you know, 10,000 computers. And I notice this group of people keep doing this copy and paste sequence and they're spending 400 hours a week on it. And right. I go in there and create a little macro type deal and, and, and automate this process. And then you pay me for that. Um, that's a huge industry right now. It's right. massive. Plus, I don't, you know, that I was thinking about one of the things I liked about or that was interesting about the material handling was. Um, I, my liability for a robot to go up four stairs to get that box of spatulas and bring it down is none. Whereas a human being going up and doing that or whatever. But in, in my industry, for example, if, I'm, if I've quadrupled the size of my facility, which we have, um, and I quadruple the number of cameras or whatever. I don't quadruple the number of people that are managing it, but the people didn't shrink either. It grew some percentage, and we have no plans. There's nothing on our near horizon that says, hey, this is how this is going to significantly reduce. But I may have tech that's walking my roof looking for thermal anomalies as opposed to having a person do that all the time. Right. And and most of the people don't want to be on a Georgia Atlanta Georgia roof in the middle of the summer doing that anyway, and so I move them into another role. At least that's how we imagine it. And when we have the and I don't think we're being Pollyanna about it. Could that happen in twenty five or fifty years or or somewhere beyond the uh, immediate event horizon um, where it is completely displaced? I suppose it's possible, but it doesn't feel. Uh, imminent. And so it surprises me that so many of the folks that you guys are talking to have a different uh, perspective, which just, I think, says to me, I need to expand the conversations that I'm having. What, what was the different perspective? Uh, the ones that I'm talking to s would say, yeah, automation is happening and, and things are going on. But we we don't think that our what people will be doing will be shifting and um, expanding or, or, you know, maybe, um, changing, but it's, uh, you know, I don't have a bunch of people, I don't have network engineers trying to respond to DDoS attacks anymore. I have a tool that responds to DDoS attacks, for example, denial of service attack, cause it could, it moves. So, you know, it's networks against networks. I don't have people doing that, but I've never needed more security firewall or whatever people that are helping to manage, write the rules, help us to understand stuff. It's We don't just turn that over to machines and AI, although we have that um, uh, built within all of our systems and they're continuing to evolve and build them. But we've got people that we've moved out of some of those more menial roles that we let systems take over or op route optimization or whatever um, but we've never needed more people in those specific roles. And so if CTOs or CIOs outside of my world are saying, man, in 10 years, you know, I, I'm just not going to have people doing those, any of those things, that surprises me. Oh, yeah, no, it doesn't surprise me at all. Um, all you have to do is solve one problem, and you just have to solve the how humans learn. And if you look at the advancement of GPT-3 over the past 10 years or seven, however long it's been, in DeepMind, Dude, we are close. Mm. We are like close. These models can do unbelievable things uh, relatively fast, and it's speeding up significantly. Yeah, I, I was actually a little bit surprised too. I thought we were farther out. I when I started, I remember the number I threw out there was like a hundred or five hundred years to them, and the 
I got corrected multiple times. Right. I talked to somebody, and it's a good episode, Adam. Maybe you remember. I talked to somebody who interviewed the top 20 most successful, famous people, like the creator of DeepMind, like all of these super famous people. Who was it, Adam? Tom Tolley. Uh, the author, I forget what his book was called, but his name Tom is Tom Tolley. Right, that yeah, down and go so check it out. I got to talk with him as one of the several interviews I did on this subject. He had wrote an entire written an entire book on it. So, um, yeah, the the famous guy from Google who was trying to like replicate his dad, and um, you know, all all of these popular people in this space, and he was he was correcting me, saying like, no, it's way sooner than that. There's only a most people are like sub fifty years arguing. Is it five? Is it twenty-five? Is it thirty-five? Hmm. And I mean, that'll be an interesting point in time. So, how do they happen. get excited about coming into work if they're these technology leaders and like, man, I'm not even my kids. If they want to follow STEM, why are we even encouraging to follow STEM? Go have them be a plumber or a electrician or whatever. Why encourage them to get involved in something that's going to be automated and replaced by a general oh. AI device? I mean. If you can't beat them, join them, right? <laughs> like, cyborg like not, it up. Cyborg it up, man. I tell Elon Musk, you know, put that Neuralink in. Let's let's mesh with them. So <laughs> I, I, it's a super interesting thing that we'll watch play out. Luckily, things, um, they, they don't happen fast in the sense of like days. You can kind of mm -hmm. see something coming, you know, a little bit farther out. Um, I think it puts more emphasis, like I said, on ownership, on your finances, you can be smarter financially. Um, you know, I follow Dave Ramsey's uh, Financial Peace University. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a, I'm a fan of that. Learn, learn how to, you know, not have debt and have financial peace. Right. Um, all those types of things sort of help you stay calm and centered in the chaos that is the evolution of technology. But it sounds like it's a difference between disruption, which we've had throughout all of history, disruption, yeah. not just technology disruption, but pandemic disruption, war disruption, natural event disruption. This feels like it's we're making our own disruption for ourselves. And it's not a disruption to where the river gets readjusted and it's got a new route, but the river keeps flowing. It's, uh, hey, 80% of the things that we did. You know, one of the things that gives me, I guess, a, as an optimistic realist, um, I, I can't remember who. I don't. I don't have my version of Adam uh, on here. Maybe Adam can look it up while we're talking. <laughs> but um, like thirty to thirty-five percent of the jobs we're going to need in the next twenty-five years aren't even invented yet, and yeah. those are going to be for people. And so, I, I don't know. My it feels like um, until this conversation. Thank you, Debbie Downer. That the um, well, I can make it positive. Yes, let's do it. You want me to? Yeah. Okay. So it's there's just we're not. When we're talking about all this automation, what we're talking about is, um, you, all right, go back to like Ray Dalio and learn some basic economics and okay. how humans exchange value. Yeah, um, He's got great videos on it. He puts them out on YouTube. Um, but essentially, we exchange value, you and I, yeah. right? And we use different currencies to exchange that value and we're exchanging, you know, time. Right. Um, and what we value as a society changes over time. Hmm. And as things uh, evolve, so will how we spend money, right? Like all the jobs we have today, we weren't spending money on, they weren't valuable, you know, 100 years ago. So if we understand this concept that when humans exist, they exchange through stores of value, different things, right? Based off of what they need. 
So that's one concept. We've got that over here. Now over here, we have this automation concept. So let's say, let's say we wipe out all engineering, uh, all, all software engineers that develop B2B software systems. Right. There's a lot of them, right. right? But that's like a specific niche. Let's say we've got some system that can, you know, replace them. Okay, so now you have tons of people out of work, right? And then let's say that happens subsequently in like two or three more industries within the next six months. Now you got a lot of people out of work. Okay, it will restructure and reorganize. Right. Because we are humans and we exchange value. So, so you should not think the sky is falling, but be prepared to get punched in the face. Because you can get punched in the face and knocked down, um, but long term, uh, it's going to be okay because we're humans and we'll exchange value with each other. Um, so that's why I'm not pessimistic about it. Mm. Um, and I would argue that it's been happening since the beginning of time. Um, the rate of which it's going to happen, I believe is going to increase mm -hmm. and the impact it's going to have on the society in general will also increase. Um, but you know, there's we've experienced this so many times I and mean, look at Detroit and the automotive industry and like the collapse of the families and, and everything there and the economy there like this this stuff has happened before right it's just going to happen on a larger scale so you know prepare for it right get your financials in order I think that's a super important one um, it allows you to have better career decisions you know uh, all sorts of things and that's something that I've worked on heavily the past decade uh, so the past 10 years I've I've done an enormous amount of work on on becoming better with um, resource allocation. Mm. I don't even call it budgeting anymore. I call it resource allocation. <laughs> well, you've got me thinking, so I'm for sure going to follow up on on some of this. One of the things, so I, I think though, probably in the biggest picture, we're agreeing what we what we may uh, what I may have misunderstood is. Um, it seemed like what you were saying in the beginning was, look, this is just, you know, here's the end and it's 100 years out, as opposed to what I'm now hearing you saying, which is the same thing I'm saying. This happened over and over and over throughout all of human history. The speed at which it's going to adjust may catch us by um, surprise if you're in a particular niche. It's hard for me sometimes to reconcile that because I've heard for five or six years that truckers are going to be, you know, out of a job and... Everybody I know with a CDL is being called, please come here. And I don't see big infrastructure being built to replace with autonomous vehicles out in point to point. It may, maybe, maybe it will okay, happen quicker. I, yeah. Can I put something out there? Yeah. Uh, we got electricity like 105 years ago or something, 105 to 110. Yep. Look at, look at what we're doing, Jay. We're bouncing light around the world with underwater <clears throat> sea cables and talking to each other in real time. Like, that's insane. Yep. <laughs> It's crazy. Yep. We have, you know, I just bought a four terabyte hard drive the other day for our new video PC. Like it, we had an extra bay. Yeah. We needed Without to even it. thinking about it for probably like a hundred bucks or something. $69. $69. $69. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Four terabyte hard drive. Yeah. yeah. It, I mean, and, you know, great grandparents, maybe. Don't say great grandparents. It's going to be very offensive. But probably about an hour after you were born, I bought my first hard drive. Yeah. For my computer that I bought from American Express, it was 20 megabytes. No, it's nice. 40 megabytes. And my dad, working for IBM at the time for NASA on the shuttle, looked at me and said, uh, 40 megabytes, you've lost your mind. You will never <laughs> need. You'll never need that, right? And uh, so many stories I've had about that over the time. I agree. What I guess I mean is 
the surprise at, you know, back to subsea cables, 20 years ago, not even 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you showed up at a trawler that laid the cable and you had an army of people. Now you've got three people in the cabin because the trawler's all GPS controlled and it's, you know, all this other stuff. And you've just got really a couple nerds that are running the machine that lays that cable. And the most exercise really is at the end, the scuba divers who bring it up into whatever the pipe is in Cornwall, yeah. England, or down in Brazil or whatever, pretty familiar with subsea cables. It, but it didn't, it didn't happen like they showed up and, you know, John and Claude and whatever had to leave the dock the next day. It was a 10-year thing, just like taxi drivers see their whole world changing over the next or over the last 10 years. Um, and so they're all disrupted and having to do other things. And ironically, people are going back to taxis because there's uh, more control and there are other things that they like now instead of the ride share. And it will balance out to your point. I... I I don't know. I think I like your idea of this redirection. It's going to redirect. I just don't know that it's going to be like all of a sudden, if you're a software programmer, you should be, you know, abandoning your profession. Well, uh, I don't think you should do that. Like I said, like you just, you just prepare for the worst and hope for the best, you know, <clears throat> like, and, and they're also solving the people who are solving this problem of making a machine that can think and learn similar to how humans can think and learn. Mm -hmm they're like really putting a lot of resources behind it. And that's the only thing they're focused on. It's so like typically when we talk about problems, like we're talking about the, you know, the subsea cable laying the subsea cable and that took 10 years. So, and all these other little problems took 10 years to solve. And then, yeah, but what if they just solved the one problem of creating a system that can be taught like a human can be and replicate those actions? Well, once that system is created, now it's just got to go through a, maturity process of being trained by some of the best in the world like we're already seeing it with the lungs as you mentioned mm -hmm. you know the ai algorithms they just somebody trained that right and it was the, some of the best minds that identified it manually and then they put that and made a training data set and then they have a model that can replicate it um that is is for that that they automated that process of people's jobs mm. right and so those are like sort of like narrow things, but when they're focused on making this model that will be able to be taught like a human, once they do that, then it's like, okay, I, I think that that will happen before the exoskeleton concept happens. So I think that will happen in displaced knowledge workers prior to um, them having a case for it, essentially mm -hmm. to look like a human and walk around like a human and touch and feel and think like a human. I think that'll come later. Yeah. Um, Maybe they'll make it look like a teenager first instead of a human. So we're going to identify it. You don't have teenagers yet. You'll, it'll be funny in a few years. You'll be, know exactly yeah. what I'm talking about. Now, did They're you... slamming doors, though. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. Hey, did you... Uh, I know we're almost out of time, but did you come to this perspective because of the last year's conversations? Or is this more independent thinking and you're bouncing it up? Uh, bouncing the idea across the people that you're having conversations with, like where where was it raised first, and um, how did you land more firmly on it? Was it confirmed by people, or did you confirm? Did you did you develop it yourself and then just verify it with your, you know, whoever your guests are? Um, I would say it's more the uh, I talk to a lot of people and I start to identify trends. Mm -hmm. And then I start to think about why am I seeing this trend? And then I sort of run that by people that are smarter in that area. Because we'll all, as, as technologists, we'll all talk outside of our areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, we can 
you can sort of glean some insight if you have a if you stroll into an area of conversation like machine learning and you get some people's views on it that aren't always in machine learning and you start to notice a pattern and I'm like, okay, why do people think like this? You know, and then I'll start talking to other people or, you know, for example, um, I'll, I'll have interest. Uh, I'll see an article about something, some sort of rapid advancement of GPT-3 mm -hmm. and I'll send a message to Yvonne and say, hey, go find the smartest people in the world that know about this subject so I can talk to them. And then I... Um, rarely do interviews like this where i'm like talking a lot most of my interview like if you look at the voice spikes mm -hmm. i mean i'm talking to sub 20 percent of the time and i'm just listening to people and i'm just asking them questions and i'm trying to sort of wrap my mind around concepts and once i wrap my mind around a concept i sort of like let it go a little bit mm. um so that's a positive thing and a negative thing in the sense that um it's harder to to talk about the conversations because I'm my brain is mostly filled with the most recent conversations yeah. <laughs> you know um, but it, I know that phenomenon a, yeah I know it's a lot of fun though and I'm always seeking truth and truth is is hard to find mm. and uh, I'm always trying to figure out what do the experts disagree on what are they arguing about but what is also at the same time fundamental to the to the art mm -hmm. that people don't really argue about um, so I'm just an explorer by nature and talk to these people. Um, sometimes I get random ideas. Like one, like one big one that I had that was random was I just like woke up one day and the first thing that popped into my mind was what are the humans building? And I was like thinking about like ant piles. And I was like, if you walk up to an individual ant and you tapped him on the shoulder, he'd be like, what are you doing? And he's like, I've got, I'm doing this one thing. Cause I love it. Right. It's my passion <laughs> or it's my, my, my drive. Right. It's what I'm dr driven to do is this one task. But if you step back, you can see that they're part of this much bigger picture. I'm like, all right, well, if you're an alien species and you're hanging out maybe on vacation on the moon or something, and you're looking down at the humans, what are we building towards? And that that will help us help me understand where the economy is heading as an entrepreneur, like where you can make macro investments and like wide categories that you know will be bigger in 20 years or whatnot. So, you know, I, I get these very intense uh uh concepts that I that I study intent like very intensively and then I sort of uh, feel a sense of conclusion and then I move on to the next topic um, so you know one of the things you also mentioned that uh, about the autonomous stuff the guy I talked to yesterday mm -hmm. the underwater robots guy mm -hmm. um, it's Saab by the way the, the company Saab yeah um, the Swedish company yeah yeah mm -hmm. yeah they sold their car division years and years yeah ago, I remember but, that yeah, they're like defense contractor and do they do yeah. all sorts of cool stuff. Yeah. Uh, so he, they had he was telling me about this company they worked with, um, Ocean something, and what they have a ship like a like a massive ship, and then on this massive ship is this like you know maybe the size of a, a, a like a garage, mm -hmm. right? It's like it's kind of big, and that's like a robot that goes in the water, and it can work on things. And the, sh the person will captain the ship from their home mm -hmm. on sea, and there's no humans on the ship, and it drives it out into the deep ocean out in the middle of nowhere where there's some subsea cables. And then they press a button, and the thing gets dropped into the water and goes down, and they do their work and their mission. They're all on their computers back on land, and then it comes back up, and the ship comes back to port, and they do the entire thing with never touching the ship yeah. in person. That's happening today. Yeah. That's crazy. 
So as you look at the next year, Joel, and you guys are just kicking around a couple cool ideas of guests or ideas that you want to talk about on your show, what are some of the ones that you're thinking about? So we've got advanced weaponry, um, nuclear <laughs> oh, technology. Oh, I'm into that. Yeah. <laughs> Holy nuclear, smokes. Yeah. Uh, and nuclear technology is not connected to advanced weaponry, right. <laughs> but just the advancement of nuclear as a power source. Uh, it's getting a lot more investment and stuff over in the UK. It's becoming more popular now in the communities. Um, we're looking at more hacking, uh, self-replicating robots, mm. um, 3D printed organs, quantum batteries, the James Webb telescope. Uh, oh, that's right. That was recently launched. Yeah, and neutron cool. rockets. So those are some wow. of the big topics <clears throat> we have coming up. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that. And, of course, we can find you at uh, the Modern CTO. Where else can they find all things Modern CTO and Joel Beasley? Yeah, so moderncto.io. If you're in the podcast app for Apple, you just type the letter CTO and we're the first result. You'll see a, a yellow background, see me with a beard. But uh, Modern CTO. Perfect. Joel Beasley, thanks for coming on the show today. It was uh, it was awesome. And make sure that I get the notification. I'm I think pretty sure I'm subscribed, but I want to see if we're talking rockets and other technology weaponization. I want to know more. Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> Outstanding. Well, hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. And if you did, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. See you, everybody. <laughs>